greatest people! No. I am the father of What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. Today we are going to be spoiling Ryan Johnson's new all-star whodunit, Knives Out. And joining me to do so in the Slate studio is Forrest Whitman, Slate's culture editor. Hey, Forrest. Uh, hey, Dana. Uh, all right. So this is going to be a juicy one for several reasons. First of all, this is the kind of movie that is way more fun to spoil than to write about in a review tiptoe style, right? Oh, I mean, it'll, it should be fun to write about, too, I feel like. I think it will be fun, so but it's it's going to take some so much fancy dancing and some of the best sure. moments can't be talked about. I yeah, mean, there are yeah, just, yeah. There are just some movies that, although I can't wait to review them, I also feel that that review will not be complete without this sort sure. of, you know, the extra room that you can wander yeah. into and spoil, which is where we are now. Um, we saw this together the other night, and we try not to talk at all about movies coming out as we're going to spoil them. But since you it happened so to be hard. there with your girlfriend and there was a social element, there was a little bit of uh, information exchanged. So I kind of know. But can you just give a quick response before we get into the story? I mean, you can guess. I think that I loved this movie. I loved it. I expected to love it, but I think I loved it even more than I expected to. I would say, you know, easily one of my favorite movies of the year, kind of up there with you know parasite and us like i don't know that it's as good as parasite but it's it's way up there for me it's in such um, a different register than those two yeah, movies it's it's hard to compare although part of what i love about all three of those movies is the way they manage to be simultaneously extremely entertaining and in many ways quite crowd pleasing um and also to blend in a like variety of uh, contemporary social commentary. Yeah, um, to be very and, modern, right? Yeah, and in, and in that way, that the, the movie that this reminded me of most was Gosford Park, which manages to pull off that same you know magic trick. Um, and in terms of whodunits, I would say it's right up there with Gosford Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously has a very similar structure in you know mm-hmm. the the people claustrophobically locked into a big country house where uh, crazy stuff happens. Um, Yes, I'm with you. I was excited for this one just because the marketing campaign has been so clever and enticing. I mean, this is sort of stuffed with stars in the old early 70s fashion, you know, like a disaster movie or or, 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 or an Agatha Christie movie. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Murder on the Orient right. Express. Yeah. Um, so you're going to hear some of those voices in this trailer and then we can break down the complex family relationships among their, their characters. Here's the trailer to Knives Out. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family have gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it? The party? Pre my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. I'm gonna live till I die. You think one of his family walls, walls. killed? Is that what you're suggesting? You all love twisting the knife into one another. Up your ass. Oh, very nice. Matter of fact, eat shit. How's that? Eat shit. Eat shit. Eat shit. shit. Definitely eat shit. 
CSI KFC? So this is such a twisty, turny plot, and there's just two of us here to reconstruct it together. You have got some pretty extensive notes on the viewing, I see. I think this is the most notes I've ever brought for a spoiler special, because this movie has more plot than just about any other movie I can think of. It's incredibly dense. Yeah, and we're we're bound to not hit on every single plot point, or we would be here as long as the movie itself lasts, which doesn't feel very long when you're in it, I have to say. This is an average, right, slightly over two-hour movie, I think. I think something like that, but, but it, it totally breezes by. Oh, yeah. It just it goes by in a snap. Um, but in that two hours plus, there is, yeah, a lot of character and uh, and story to get to know. The first actual shot is just, you know, this kind of manor in Massachusetts. I, I don't know that they ever say in the movie where it takes place, but it, it's it's current day and it was shot in Massachusetts. You can see that on the documents when they get to the court documents oh, okay. later. It says state of Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we see this house, which is where pretty much all of the action takes place. And it's kind of a foggy. I mean, at one point, the set of this movie is compared to um, a clue board. Like right. it, the, the main character is a mystery writer um, played by Christopher plumber his name is harlan thromby and he is described as living in a clue board which is very much how the whole thing looks kind of a um, victorian mansion yeah, right gingerbread like gothic like there i can't remember if i described this but there's there's fog and then the first shot is just these you know fairly aristocratic i guess they're not hounds they're like german shepherds or something running towards the camera but anyway um and then we meet the character who ends up somewhat surprisingly being the closest thing to a protagonist in this movie i think um who is uh marta uh played by anna de armas um and she's the nurse at the house and the first thing we see after the gothic manor is there's just a quick cut to her mug that says on it my house my rules my coffee and so you get right there the kind of tone of the movie which is this is at once this gothic murder mystery and simultaneously this kind of like jaunty very contemporary uh, comedy um, which is a lot like what Ryan Johnson did with Brick his first movie where that was at once a film noir uh, in a you know very 1940s fashion and also it took place at a high school and so there was a lot of pleasure from combining those yeah. things and that's kind of what you get in the particularly first. in the language and we should mention that he was the writer too he's the yes. sole writer of the screenplay right and uh, and like Brick this has its own very specific voice this movie I would say there's a certain kind of slang and a certain style of humor that goes with it which like in Brick doesn't quite seem to go with the 
almost period genre setting. It's not a period movie. It's in the present day. Right. But there's all these parts of it where you feel like you've been thrown back into some earlier decade. Right. As you might expect, it, it starts with a housekeeper, uh, Fran, discovering the body of our victim, Harlan Thrombey, the mystery writer, um, you know, at the top floor. And as she's study. bringing him up his tray, right? In fact, at with that moment, coffee, at that moment, it's it's his coffee cup. I mean, she's right. bringing it up to, to him with his breakfast. Right. And then we immediately cut forward one week later um, to the questioning, which is when we meet all of the other characters, all of the other movie stars kind of one by one. And in fact, um, you know, as each new child or, or, or grandchild is introduced to us and inherently they're all suspects, we see their name on screen in a, in a sort of, you know, serifed clue board type font. Or in fact, I think the place they took the font from is just like covers of old Agatha Christie novels. Um, so we should go through, I guess, each of the family members and suspects. One yeah, by one. And, and figure out, which I probably already started to forget myself, what their relationships are to each other and to Harlan Thrombey, the Christopher Plummer figure. Right. It's probably 10, 15 minutes into the movie before you've met all the characters and understood all their relationships to each other. Right. Well, there's a key one that doesn't show up until about halfway through, which is Chris Evans' right. character. Well, you see him in flashbacks, I guess, right. early on. but right. But he, he isn't interviewed until later. So so the first person interviewed is uh, Linda, the Jamie Lee Curtis character. And she's just, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is, I, I think, somewhat underused in this movie. But that's not to say she isn't fun. She's really fun. She gets to play this kind of like haughty bitch. Who is the oldest daughter, I think, of Harlan Thrombey, correct? Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds right. She's, she's definitely a daughter. And she's married to uh, Richard, who is played by Don Johnson, who uh, we get to know him somewhat better, like just in particular through his politics. Um, he's this very Trumpian character. I mean, he's a Trump supporter and he uses all of the terms you would expect from such a person. So as we meet each of these children, we also get their potential motives. And his is that Harlan, Christopher Plummer's character, who was just murdered, had also just found out that the Don Johnson character was having an affair and Harlan was about to basically out his uh, son-in-law to his wife. But I think we're skipping over something really important, Forrest. I think we're alighting the means of death, which we don't know at the beginning is murder, right? I mean, all these people we are hearing explain these stories and explain but their legends to each other. But it's Dana. We know it's murder. <laughs> well, but the framing of the movie at the beginning, as the house, housekeeper comes in, is that she's found Harlan having committed suicide. He looks like he's slit his own right. throat with one of right. his daggers, which we should establish that among the bizarre things around his gothic house that the camera's already taken us on several tours yeah. through, which has, you know, all these old figurines and beheaded baby dolls and just kind of crazy gothic things. Among the things he has is a knife collection. And so right. he seems to have taken some sort of ancient dagger and slit his own throat. So the mere fact that it's even being investigated as foul play is because of, you know, the hunches of the Daniel Craig detective character who we'll get to. But OK, right. moving on. They're telling these stories that we are about to tell you in the context of being interrogated by the cops. Right. And so next we have Joni, who's played by Tony Collette and who is uh, basically just like a Gwyneth Paltrow type character down to she has her own l line of beauty products, which instead of being called goop is called flam. I love flam. I have flam written in huge letters. Letters in my notes. It's the most brilliant goop knockoff name. And she, Tony Collette's character, whose name Joni, is the daughter-in-law of Harlan Thrombey, but her husband has already died before the movie starts, right? So she's this single mother who's been living off Harlan Thrombey's wealth 
uh, since the loss of her husband, presumably, and is also sending her daughter currently to college on his dime. Right. I mean, another thing that's worth mentioning is, yes, she is living off his wealth, but also each and every one of them claim to be self-made. Like there's a sort of running joke about how Harlan Thrombey was somehow a self-made man. I don't know if that's totally established as being a lie, but... All of his kids claim that they all somehow made their fortunes, but then we find out later, unsurprisingly, that they they made their fortunes after getting, you know, million dollar loans, which is also just like Donald Trump. Right, Um, right. Another part of the social commentary of this movie that's just embedded into the story. It doesn't need to be made that explicit. Another supposedly self-made man is uh, the son, Walt, who is played by Michael Shannon, who is the publisher of uh, Harlan Thrombey um, and claims all sorts of credit for his feats of publishing. But really, he's just taking his dad's books and putting them on the page. And then his son is Jacob Thrombey. He was described in the movie as just straight up, quote, an alt-right troll and a Nazi. He's played by Jaden Martell from uh, It!, there's Nana Thromby, who must be more than 100 years old, because Harlan Thromby was killed on the night of his 85th birthday. And so if his mother is still around, presumably she's like 106 or something. Throughout the movie, she hardly says anything. And I kept wondering whether there was going to be some sort of twist where it turns out that she's actually a lot more, you know, there than you think she is. Well, her lucidity does come into play later yes. on, as we'll see. Yeah, they do play with it, just like in a more narrow range. I, I love the moment, though, when one of the detectives asks, how old must she be? And somebody from the family says, no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, this movie is so dense with jokes, it would be easy to, to miss some pretty good ones. And in fact, I can't wait to see it again to catch them. And then lastly, uh, we meet Marta, uh, played by Anna de Armas, um, who is the nurse. And she's described at once as quote, part of the family, just repeatedly, they all say, oh, she's just like a family member. But they also, uh, alternately, the first person says she's from Ecuador. The next person says she's from Paraguay. Later, somebody says she's from Brazil. (laughs) So clearly, they like pretend that she's from part of the family, but they don't. I mean, the movie will then test how much they really mean it. And she's the closest thing we should say that the movie has to a protagonist, yeah. pretty much. Not necessarily in terms of screen time, but as we'll get to, I mean, just in terms of her being one of the few moral agents in the movie that seems to be acting from anything other than just pure venality and greed. Yeah, and and she's a little bit of a, a cipher at this point in the movie, though. I think it's pretty early on that we get the sense that she has quite a close and intimate relationship with Harlan Thrombey. And also, we learn that she beats him frequently or regularly at Go, the board game that they play together a lot. So we know that she's very, very smart uh, and certainly at least the equal of everyone in this family. Um, And then there's the detectives. Okay, well, we don't learn much about any of the detectives except Benoit Blanc, the incredible name of the uh, sort of Hercule Poirot, Sherlock Holmes-style genius. Yeah, there's references to all of those detectives, basically. And although he's from Tennessee, he has this French name. He's kind of a mysterious figure. He also doesn't seem to be... The French name Directly. is part of the Poirot thing, right? I think like that the, the name, they made the names kind of sound like right, each other. Right, right. But just the idea that there's no explanation of, you know, what's the sort of background of this French named drawling dude from Tennessee? Yeah, I guess I'd forgotten he's from Tennessee. I'd sort of filed him as, you know, being from maybe Louisiana or something, like sort of the French Southern, you know, Cajun uh, tradition. Um, and he has that kind of foghorn leghorn accent. 
Right. So Benoit Blanc is there, although he doesn't seem to be exactly heading the investigation. And we'll find out later that he has been anonymously summoned by we don't know who. Essentially, he's been right. brought on as a private hire to help these uh, these other two detectives by person unknown who who we'll get to. Um, but the two cops who seem to be assigned to the case, more like the Massachusetts State Police who are just there investigating it, are played by Lakeith Stanfield and Noah Segan and are sort of basically goofy foils in a way for the Daniel Craig character. Yeah, I mean, the Lakeith Stanfield character, he's good, but a little bit underused too. I mean, it's hard to make the most of everyone when you have this much acting talent in a movie. So he's kind of a little bit more the straight man among the three detectives. Although, then, isn't it he who says the clue board line, which is one of the better lines maybe in the movie. yeah i mean he's he's clearly very smart as well and then the character who does not seem very smart and is uh, you know arguably the goofiest of all is his partner who's played by noah Sega. who's sort of bedazzled right by the smarts he's a fan of, boy, of benoit blanc and also just by the fact that he's on a real live clue right. style murder investigation and it also works well that so noah Segan is this guy who's been in every one of ryan johnson's movies and they seem to just kind of be old friends and so it works that the least famous actor in this movie, like by far, is also the character who's constantly just awed by everything that's going on. Well, the, I mean, the other thing that's worth saying maybe about Daniel Craig's character, as you alluded to, he's not there as an official detective. And I, I, is he even actually a detective or is he just like a brilliant solver of mysteries? I mean, the thing we learn about him is that he's been written about in this uh, New Yorker profile. And we even see like an actual New Yorker or what it, what very strongly resembles a New Yorker illustration. And what this reminded me most of is, I don't know if you um, ever read the uh, David Grand story, Dana, about the actual murder among Sherlock Holmes fan society. There's an amazing David Grand story about this. And it similarly has this kind of meta element that this movie has where you have the murder of an actual mystery writer and all of the sort of mystery fans that gather around this real murder. No, I never read that. That sounds amazing. Maybe that could be something that he was thinking about. I imagine he read it and was maybe inspired by it. Um, yeah, but there's some fun about that, too, because as people are being in- investigated, interrogated, they recognize him from the profile, right? I mean, it's just it, it sort of works into the whole sort of trading of status and prestige that the the family, the Thromby family, is, is completely obsessed with. This is such a critique of meritocracy, this movie, right? I mean, in a very underhanded yeah. way. Well, right. It's a critique of white Americans, right? Like the house... It becomes increasingly clear and it's probably become partly, even if you haven't seen the movie, it's probably become partly clear from our description. It's just like this microcosm of white America that believes that they've earned everything they own and is loath to give it up. And then there's this sort of struggle over inheritance. And we're sort of dancing around the fact that we soon learn there's basically two big twists that happen right now. And one of them is that Harlan Thromby has left all of his possessions to Marta, the nurse, and all of this whole white family is really pissed about. Which the we idea learn at a, at a big public woman. reading of the of the will by Frank Oz as yes. the lawyer, which is a great touch. Uh, and that scene, I think, is really beautifully choreographed and set up because all of the stuff that we just heard, right? I mean, the kind of ingenious editing, talking head style editing of the first half, setting everything up, is really just an excuse to have the scene finally where they all come together in this room and just have a, a big brawl about the the money. Yeah, it's incredibly funny. And and I guess so that is around when um, the other member of the family who I haven't really talked about much because he's not interviewed at first, um, who is uh, Ransom, uh, the, who's played by Chris Evans, he shows up. Right. So he is the grandson of, mm. of Harlan Thrombey and somebody who we learn 
is semi-estranged from him. And we have seen this one scene repeated several times in the flashbacks and the stories that people tell. So he had a fight with his grandfather, Harlan Thrombey, on his 85th birthday and stormed out of the party. He also did not attend the funeral, which everybody was really upset about. Right. And it's from what was overheard of the fight. It sounds like he had just found out that he was disinherited individually because there's a perception that he is just kind of a leech on the family. He's like he's basically a trust fund kid with all of the connotations and stereotypes that brings along with it. Like he's extremely fashionable and also lazy and uh i don't know i mean he's like he's fairly quick-witted i mean he's the one who delivers the line calling the daniel craig character csi kfc uh, i love chris evans in this role love him it makes me so excited about his post captain america career that he can do comedy so incredibly well I mean, right. I think he is not an especially versatile actor, but he is very good within the range that he works within. And this role is a kind that he's been taking a lot where he takes his sort of Captain America hero persona and then undercuts it by, you know, playing somebody who represents something much darker about America. Um, a kind of devious douche bro kind of figure. Yes. Um, it, it, which is something similar to what he does in Snowpiercer, too. Um, so the other big twist is, at, as so far as we know, at this point of the movie, we basically just find out who killed Harlan. Uh, I don't and know that if you want to talk about that, That is Dana. such a great move on Ryan Johnson's yes. part. I mean, this movie feels so original. We haven't really kind of pulled back enough to say that, but it's strange that it does feel so original when it's incredibly citational. Um, I mean, yeah. for one one reason it's fresh, I think, is that it's citational of a genre that's not being cited that often right now. I and mean, we did sure. have that Kenneth Branagh remake, very straightforward, yeah. you know, remake of, of the Agatha Mur- Christie, Murder mm-hmm. in the Orient Express a couple of years ago. But it's not like noir where people are digging back and kind of bringing it back all the time lately, right? But another big part of the way that it's fresh is that even for a movie of that type, it's paced in a very unusual way. So as you said, gives this revelation of what actually happened the night, the mysterious night of Harlan's 85th birthday, probably 20 minutes into the movie or something like that, right? Maybe a little bit more. I mean, in the first third of the movie easily, you you learn every key detail about how he actually ended up dead on that sofa. And that's what we should get into now. Or so we think. (laughs) Okay. We'll We'll get into this later. Yeah, yeah. So through this flashback, we learn through Anna's eyes, right, through the yes. eyes of the, the nurse hired to take care of the elderly Harlan, what happened that night in her experience. So can we put together those things? Yes. Basically, she is giving Harlan his nightly medicine and his morphine. She doses him with 100 grams of medicine or what she thinks is 100 grams of medicine of his medicine and three grams of morphine or what she thinks is three grams. And then she looks at the labels and she finds out that she gave him 100 grams out of the bottle labeled morphine. And so she sees the label and starts freaking out because she thinks she has just killed him. Uh, and then because Harlan Thrombey is who he is, the you know brilliant Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie type mystery writer, he immediately... Susses out what what's happened. You know, she tells him he only has 10 minutes to live. She starts scrambling for the naloxone, you know, the only drug that will revive him. When she can't find it, he immediately concocts an elaborate plot that will uh, make it look like he has killed himself. 
and make her look entirely free of blame. And it's worth mentioning here that um, we also learn some at some point in the first third of this movie that Marta's mother is undocumented. And so that's at stake that she could be deported as well. Right. And so that exchange between them is actually really important where he basically convinces her, I'm gone anyway. Yes. I'm going to be dead within 10 minutes. Let's stage my death so that it looks like a suicide so that, and at that moment, one moment she doesn't know so that you can inherit all of my earthly goods, although he knows that, right? She just knows that he right. wants her to be safe, to not go to jail, for her mother not to be caught without papers, etc. So he says things like, go downstairs as noisily as you can. And and then she sort of sneaks back and pretends that she's him just getting up for a snack a little bit later in the night. So it seems like she could not possibly have killed him because, you know. Because they, after she left, yes. he was seen in the house, right? Right. And then he slashes his throat. So. We think we figured it all out. And then, yeah, and then the second act or so of this movie, it stops being a whodunit and becomes this sort of Hitchcockian suspense movie where we like Marta and we don't want her to be found out for what she's done. Um, but meanwhile, Benoit Blanc, the master investigator, is continuing all of his interviews. Um, and she's kind of, she in fact literally is covering her tracks. Well, and she becomes a significant part of the investigation even before she's fully confessed mm-hmm. to Benoit, which she will eventually do, in part because they discover this physiological glitch she has that is very useful in interview scenarios, which is that she's, and of course, this also speaks to her character's goodness. She's physically incapable of lying, and whenever she lies, she throws up. And the first time she says that, you, like Benoit and the other detectives, think it's some kind of metaphor. But right. then after she barfs into a nearby vase, you realize it's actually true. She's like a built-in lie detector test, right? I mean... She cannot lie about anything. And as a result, it ends up being pretty easy for Benoit to get a version of the truth out of her. Yeah. And in fact, the next thing that really happens after this uh, sort of fight over the will where the whole family is like, no, 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 we can't have all this money go to Marta, even though earlier they just have been talking about how she's a member of the family and so on. Um, is that Ransom, the Chris Evans character, takes her out for food and they sort of sneak away, basically. You know, right after she's finished eating a big meal, he's like, okay, I know you did it. You're going to tell me exactly what happened. And in fact, one of the other things he says right then is that he had heard from Harlan Thrombey that she was um, the only other character who would beat him more often than Ransom would. So we get the sense that they're the two smartest people left in the house. Right. And that also, I think, sets up a kind of emotional competition between them. You know, I mean, it's one of the few moments that Ransom, who's a pretty despicable and kind of soulless character, that you have some sense that he wanted to be valued by his grandfather, right? I mean, for his own ability to play Go, if nothing else. A detail in that scene in the restaurant where he, he makes her tell the truth um, that I really loved because it's a kind of double fake out of the audience is that the whole time your mind is racing saying, I thought Ransom was completely awful. You know, why are we supposed to trust him in this scene? Why, why is he suddenly reaching out to her in this way that he wants to help her? I can't 100% go over into the camp of Ransom is okay. But then he does something kind of sneaky in that scene and asks for yeah. a cut of the money. And then you see, ah, well, he is in it for himself after all. Yeah. And I think to me, the ambiguity still worked also because, you know, what we've heard about him being terrible, we've heard from this family who we've also come to learn are all terrible and hypocritical and liars. And so it seems to me like, Oh, maybe the reason he just always stays away from everyone and doesn't want to be around these people is that they're horrible people. You know? Right. So a part of me was able to connect with him a little bit during that scene and to uh, go along with them as uh, uh, during what happens next, which is basically that Marta and ransom start teaming up to try to, you know, stop Marta from being discovered. 
But do you remember what the next big twist is? No, tell me. Uh, the next big twist is that Marta receives in the mail uh, what appears to be the toxicology report. And uh, we just see the header of the toxicology report and then scrawled below it in, you know, Sharpie or something. It just says, I know you did it or I know what you did. That's when they start freaking out and are trying to figure out who this person is. Um, and they go to the toxicology center or whatever it is, the coroner's office, and it's been burned down. Uh, a car chase ensues. Right, because, because they're seen at the toxicology office, right? Parked outside. Why would they be there if they didn't know about it being burned down? So right. Benoit goes off in, in hot pursuit of what Lakeith Stanfield's character calls the dumbest car chase I've ever been in. <laughs> Which is actually a pretty great, I mean, that comes right at the end of the car chase. And it's funny because it is a pathetic car chase, but it's quite a good car chase right like it is again pretty original like everything in this movie it is at once a little bit of a pastiche and a spoof of what you would expect but also quite successfully surprising and suspenseful and so it ends up being that she's you know in a hyundai that is you know much slower than all these cop cars and stuff but then she uses it to her advantage by slamming on the brakes and winding down tiny alleys that they can't yeah, which again, to good. me, it became a little bit of a class commentary as well, right? Sure, because yeah. she's got a, a junky old car with a cross hanging from the mirror. And, you know, it's it's the nurse's car. But she manages to dart into all kinds of alleyways that her pursuers can't make it into. And so the next two things that happen, although I, I'm, I don't know if I remember ex- exactly what order, um, but... Marta receives a text message. So she wasn't able to get the toxicology report. But after she's gotten away from the police, she receives a text message with like a new address. And so she goes for a meeting there. In fact, she hasn't even gotten away from the cops. Yeah, he just like lets her go, which is I mean, his character is a little bit mysterious because he's at once really brilliant and like a little sort of bumbling and naive, I think. Right. He's like brilliant and also a little bit of a joke. But he also thinks at that point that she's on his side. Right. I mean, he's discovered the barfing trick. He sort of thinks just like Ransom thinks that, you know, he's teaming up with her to solve the case. But it is very trusting that he says, sure, I'll just wait here in the car listening to something on my headphones while you just disappear into a laundromat. (laughs) After she had just like run away from the police in a high speed chase. Yeah. So Marta goes into this laundromat and in there uh, is Fran, the housekeeper, and she has been poisoned. And then she appears to say, you did it. And Marta, despite thinking uh, that, you know, Fran knows that she did it and and would send her to jail and send her mother to be deported and stuff, Marta still calls 911 to try to save uh, Fran. So this is the second time so far in the movie that we've seen Anna's goodness, you know, just kind of showcased in a yeah. moment of emergency, right? The first one being when Harlan dies and he has such a hard time convincing her, you know, of this, yeah. of this scheme. Um, and you see that she truly cares about him. Right. And, uh, right. and that nobody else in the, in the family really does. And so here, once again, I mean, she doesn't even seem to have had a particularly close relationship with Fran, but she is just humanitarian enough to stay there and try to do mouth to mouth resuscitation, call 911 on this housekeeper, which is further proof for us, the viewer, that if anybody's going to deserve this fortune, it's going to be Marta. Things start to move very swiftly at this point in terms of twists. They they take Fran to the hospital, which we only briefly see. She is not dead. She's sort of stable, and they leave her there. And 
the next big thing that's going to happen is that Marta comes com- completely clean to Benoit, right? So can you take us to how that takes place? Yeah, I mean, so all the characters are back in one place. I can't even remember how much of the confession she is able to spit out because it's during this time we have heard from Benoit Blanc in in one of the funnier parts of the movie that the entire case feels to him like a donut. It's a case where he's figured out everything, but there appears to be a hole in the middle. And then when he hears from Marta her confession that it appears to fill in the donut with a donut hole. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then around the time that Marta is either confessing or ready to confess. He starts to talk about how there is, in fact, a hole within the donut hole. (laughs) And then he says, well, perhaps I only mean a smaller donut. (laughs) Which got a big laugh. I mean, that's one of those moments, as I was talking about, like with Brick or with Looper, you know, Uh, doing the straw diagram on the table. I mean, just moments where this kind of goofy or more casual modern language erupts into this very period world. It's just it's just the audience loves it when that happens in this movie. And uh, the donut may be the biggest laugh of that kind. Yeah. And and then what ensues is is my favorite sequence of the movie which is basically Benoit Blanc first he um, he rolls up his sleeves and he tucks his tie into his shirt as if he's about to sit down for a for a meal and he doesn't want to get any stains on him or whatever and then he just you know tells the whole story of what actually happened I guess if we're going to reconstruct the last night of Harlan Thrombey's life via what Benoit Blanc has to say about it essentially Chris Evans character Ransom knew as of the party, the thing that he discovered at the party was not just that he was cut off, but right. that everyone was cut off, yes. that Marta was getting everything, right? And so he very hastily, he didn't have long to do it. In fact, we see him go driving away from the party and then just make a U-turn and come back right. to execute his plan. Um, so the plan that he made, he must have known a lot about that medical bag because right. he proceeds to go and mess with the medical bag in the following way. He switches the labels mm-hmm. on the two bottles, right? right? So the morphine's labeled as a non-deadly drug. The non-deadly drug is labeled as morphine. He also steals the naloxone, which would have right. revived his dad. So he's already foreseeing that she's going to give him the wrong shot, right? Right. Proceeds to leave that bag put together in that way in the room. But what actually happens, and this is what you had to explain to me, you and your girlfriend coming out of the movie, because it went by really fast in his explanation, what actually happens when she goes to give him his shot that night is that, and once again, Anna's goodness to the rescue, right? Because she's so confident at her job and such right. a good nurse, she sort of knows by feel which liquid is which in the bottle. Right. It's like basically muscle memory that she just sort of absentmindedly feels the bottle that is the actual morphine, even though it's been labeled otherwise and gives him the proper doses by muscle memory before looking at the labels and finding out what she believes she has done. Right. So basically she thinks that she just killed him, but in fact she gave him the proper medicine. Right. Which of course also adds to the tragedy as she realizes in that scene because he didn't have to slit his throat and die. He was right. actually perfectly fine. Right. Um, so with both of them believing that he's dead, their whole plan is then concocted, Right. I mean, one thing I think we should um, briefly uh, explain as part of Chris Evans's character and his entire plan was. So what is his plan was supposed to be was that he would frame Marta for killing uh, Harlan. And the reason that that is what he would do is because the only way that he would ever get his inheritance is if the person who was set to get it was proven to be the killer. Because there's this whole thing that's discussed in the movie that's the Slayer rule, which I looked up, and it's a real thing, which is basically you cannot 
get an inheritance if you kill the person that you even accidentally from. uh well i think yeah I don't, I don't i didn't look far enough for that but i think it would cast enough doubt right. or maybe she would be convicted it would it would look fishy right um so that's what he planned to do but then that went wrong and harland ended up killing himself and then things go a little awry Ransom gets the toxicology report, right? And then he hides the bottom of it because he has found out that, in fact, it wasn't the morphine that killed Harlan. There are no traces of morphine, right? Right, right. That Harlan had killed himself because of his actions. So he sort of hides the bottom of that. And then... Uh, we learned that it was Ransom that poisoned Fran, um, which is further evidence that he is, you know, a very bad person, <laughs> unlike Marta. Uh, I think those are all the details we need to really get into of what actually happened, though there are some fun kind of switcheroos that you you may want to talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, I just feel like a moment that we have to talk about that's happened somewhere in the crazy series of revelations that you just mentioned is that this isn't just people sitting in chairs talking about it. There's like a lot of action going on as all these stories are being told, including physical action. And one of the things that happens is that at a certain point, Chris Evans' character comes at Anna with a knife from this knife display, this almost Game of Thrones style knife display that, you know, the collector of weird things Harlan Thrombey has somewhere in his mansion. And uh, I just thought that was a glorious moment, too, because it's something that was planted at the beginning that he has some knives that are trick knives right. and some knives that are real. But so much has happened since then that I, for one, completely forgot about that. So there's this terrifying moment when you think that Anna's been impaled and, you know, it's just about to, to bleed out oh, from this it. wound. I knew it. I was you waiting for it. the false knife the whole movie. You've I seen more maybe the, the Christie well, than me. I mean, you, it's, like a, it's like Chekhov's false knife, yeah. right? Like, if you know there are false knives in the house, you know they're going to be used at some point. I thought we might find out that Harlan, you know, we haven't talked about who... We thought actually did it and what our theories were and and to what extent we were able to stay ahead of the movie or not. I mean, I, I t- totally did not figure it out, which was part of the fun. I of didn't it. even I try to. I didn't try to figure it out. A little bit, like a little bit ahead, but certainly the whole ransom master plan and so on, I did not at all um, get that. But, you know, so I thought maybe given that Harlan actually killed himself with a knife i thought maybe that would have been a false knife and that really harlan had set up this entire right and that he was going to appear at the end yeah Yeah, that's the kind of thing that could have happened or i mean i I wasn't trying super hard to figure it out because i was just enjoying being jostled along by each new twist but i kind of thought there was going to be something maybe not full-on murder on the orient express that it was all of them but that there was some sort of um network you know some kind of conspiracy among the thrombies where a bunch of them did it together whoa spoilers for murder on the orient express dana (laughs) jeez also, Gosford Park, I think, has that element, too. Right. And and then the one, I guess, crucial thing that we should spoil that happens during the scene is not only does he attempt to kill Marta, but he also at some point effectively confesses, uh, but while saying, like, you can't prove I did this. Like, it's all you're saying, but I'll block it. Oh, that's the Fran fake out. It's such a clever, it's almost like from Columbo or something, or good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Just the moment when they fake out that it is completely on his idea, right? She comes up with it on the phone call. She gets a phone call from the hospital. We think that Fran is okay, but in stable condition, right? And so there's this important call that she has where we don't hear the other end of the call. Is she alive or is she dead? She gets off that call and tells everybody that Fran is alive, right? 
um, freeing up Chris Evans' character Ransom to essentially give give his villain motive speech, you know, from every supervillain movie, like the moment that he reveals what his whole plan was. Like, this is great. She's not actually dead. The worst I can be accused of is assault. With a good lawyer, I'll get off. And believe me, I can afford a good lawyer, right? He's kind of glorying in his ability to to knock this rap now that the this woman is not dead. And, uh, and then there's just this great moment when Anna says, well, I lied. She's actually dead. <laughs> so you're a murderer and you just confess to it. Well, no, she doesn't say it. She just blows chunks all over his face. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. That's what Marta does. That's her version which of saying it. Which is when he it. starts going to stabbing her. It, right. It's a great it's a great moment. It's quite gross. They make it sort of like, it looks like Lucky Charms or something, so it's a little gross, but it's not so gross that anybody in the theaters. For, for a movie that has this much vomiting in it, and if you're someone like me who really can't stand vomiting on film, it's pretty discreet. It's usually sort of off yeah. screen into a vase or something like that. But at that point, he completely deserves the, uh, the Fruit Loop face, so you don't mind. So, yeah, I mean, Captain America turns out to be this Nazi-ish murderer. Um, and then, you know, we referred to it earlier, but I feel like we have to talk about the really perfect last shot of this movie, which is that Ransom, the Chris Evans character, is being taken away. The whole rest of the family is in shock. They're out in the driveway watching him being taken away. And then, I don't know, I guess the camera sort of pulls out and reveals Marta is up on the balcony um, sipping from her mug that says, my house, my rules, my coffee, (laughs) which is just, you know. Because it's literally her house now, and they've all lost it to her, which both works on the literal level um, in terms of what's happening with these characters and also this FU to all of these white Americans who are really loath to give up their wealth. And in fact, one of the other things we didn't talk about that Ransom says during that sequence is that he says something about how the ha- house is, quote, his birthright. And then somebody else is like, come off it, man. You're like your dad bought this from a Pakistani broker in the 1980s. <laughs> so it's not like, they, you know, it's this classic thing where... I don't know if we even really need to explain it, but like, you know, white people come to think like, oh, no, this is my land when they weren't the first people here. And so they, um, you know, get mad at whatever the next round of immigrants is. And then it ends up with the immigrant being in charge of the house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the family's self-mythologization is just continually punctured throughout the whole movie. One little twist that we forgot about since you were saying that Jamie Lee Curtis kind of needed more moments in the sun is that is that very quickly also in the same period that the whole crime is being unraveled and Benoit is taking away the Chris Evans character to jail. Um, There's this discovery by Jamie Lee Curtis that her husband cheated on her. The thing that her father wanted to tell her, right, on the last night of his life, but never did. He had actually written a note to her in invisible ink, um, which we see earlier in the movie as as just a blank Mm -hmm. piece of paper in an envelope. And Don Johnson's all happy because this note that he thought, you know, his his wife was going to find out about his infidelity turns out to just be a blank piece of paper. But no, it's not. She lights a a lighter to it or something and, uh, and learns of his infidelity. And so just in a single glance between them, we also learn that that's completely over, you know. so doubly fine. So these faces, I mean, the choreography or whatever you call it, the blocking kind of of that of that very last scene is brilliant because everybody's been so claustrophobically gathered inside for so long. Right. But then there's this reason for all of them to move out of the house. And uh, and then just that, as you say, that sort of slow turn, the whole family turns Ah. around and uh, and it's become her house. It's become her house kind of visually and spatially as well as financially. I mean, the other thing I'll say about that 
shot is that not only was it really funny and thematically resonant, but I like I found it very moving. Were you moved during that scene? Like I got a little bit choked up at the last shot of this movie, which I think it's a little hard for me to sort out how much of it was just the feeling of, that I sometimes get of just being choked up as at like, wow, what a great little piece of art. What <laughs> yeah, a great movie yeah. that was. Um, and how much I was sort of moved by the you know more thematic elements right what. but i definitely got a little choked up during that moment which is that that's the one thing i didn't expect to get from this movie yeah well i mean it's a little bit it's it's just that moment of seeing the low brought high and the high brought low yeah. you know just their comeuppance is really satisfying and the mystery of what will happen next because only just the scene before she she was saying to the detectives well should i give them some of the money you know she's wondering now that yeah. she has all this money what to what to do with it something that comes up earlier in the movie as well when i forget who it is i guess it's probably Rand them is saying to her something about well we can get you the best lawyers where this person it's is michael trying shannon's to use char- oh it's, yeah you're it's right notable that it's michael shannon's character because he is somebody who previously seemed to be not one of the really conservative types in the family like when don johnson is spouting a bunch of trump nonsense i don't remember whether he's arguing with the don johnson character but he's certainly not taking his side and so even the ostensibly good white person turns out to be horrible when it really comes to like his possessions being at stake right and that moment is just extraordinary it's in the hallway it's that same scene right where she first gets the ransom note but uh but he says to her you know we can take care of you and get you a good lawyer and even you can see even her realizing in that moment like wait i don't just have to nod along with this more powerful man's words right now because actually i'm the one with the resources and that's what she says yeah it's worth mentioning also so yeah when marta's deciding what to do um, there's a, a kind of note that I think is pretty well struck where uh, Benoit Blanc, this very Southern white guy, says to her, like, I think you'll figure it out. And so he doesn't tell her what to do, but she he's like confident that she'll make the right decision. It's also sort of interesting that it's the Southern white guy who's like the one guy who's kind of okay in this movie, which... I think helps the movie from falling into the trap of just being like, oh, Southern white people are terrible. Like it's only the Southern people or anything right, like that. Yeah. It's slightly more complicated. So I think we spoiled everything that's really crucial to this movie. I mean, we talked about before how dense this movie is, and I can't wait to see it again because of that. A small example of that, and it's a little bit more in the Easter egg category, but as we were walking out of the movie, the one thing we did permit ourselves to discuss Dana was that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in the credits. He's like right at the end of the credits and he's listed as detective something. I don't remember the name. It's not a character we ever see in the movie. Um, but I had a hunch about who it was and I looked it up afterwards. And, and do you know who it is? I'm going to guess it's someone whose voice you hear on the phone. It's So it's not somebody you hear on the phone. It's So the, the movie has lots of references to other uh, whodunits and mysteries and stuff. And one of, I think the first of all of them is we overhear in Marta's house this very bad sounding like CSI or SVU type show um, where they're, you know, it's like it's like one of those classic moments where somebody says something sensibly clever and punny and then puts on their glass, sunglasses. It's that kind of thing. But it's that guy who's the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character. Huh. And there's just lots of little moments like this. Like, um, at one, did you catch Ricky Jay in the movie? No. He's, he's just in a, a little photograph um, at some point. Uh, I think it's maybe when they go to get the uh, surveillance tape of the driveway, which we didn't talk about. It's not really essential that we get into the driveway stuff. But um, his photo was there, and I was a little bit moved and couldn't quite figure it out. And then um, 
uh, I was looking it up and Ricky Jay, who just died like a year or so ago and loved this kind of sleight of hand, um, also worked on The Brothers Bloom. And so that must be Ryan Johnson's little homage to to Ricky Jay. Oh, anyway, this is movie is so sweet. dense and I can't wait to see it again for that and so many other reasons. Are you going to see it again, do you think? Oh, yeah. that was This is one of those, like Parasite, that I wished it could have just started yeah. again immediately. You know, yes. anytime a movie is that surprising and that full of twists you didn't expect, you want to see how it's built afterwards. So I cannot wait to see it again. I mean, to point towards something that's outside of this movie, but that I definitely was thinking about walking out of it, it's just, it's great that Ryan Johnson is so curious to experiment in different genres. Now mm. that he's powerful enough in the film industry to do anything he wants, you know, now that he's Star Wars guy, but doesn't seem interested in going on to be more Star Wars guy. Well, I, at some point, at least, he was supposed to do, in fact, an entire Star Wars trilogy of his own. Even though that would make him, quote, Star Wars guy, I think it would make him a pretty interesting Star Wars guy oh, sure. if, if he had that much creative control. Like, I actually think that I, I won't mind if Ryan Johnson makes a Star Wars trilogy of his own. I would have nothing against that except the opportunity cost that that's sure, that many yeah. more years that he's not making original movies. And when right. he makes one, I mean, as much as I admired his Star Wars installment, I really did. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's when he makes a movie from an original script like this or a looper or a brick that it's it's really a sui generis thing, you know, that's that's it seems like only he could do. Right. Right. I think it depends how, how, quote, original his Star Wars movie would be or his trilogy. At any rate, um, this is this is definitely one to watch out for, even if you're not a Star Wars person and to you is just the Star Wars guy. I mean, I would also send those people back to Looper, Brick, et cetera. Yeah. But, um, but this is a perfectly fine place to start. Um, but at any rate, go Ryan Johnson, make more movies like this. And I commend everybody to go see Knives Out. All right. Well, that's our show. Our producer today is Rosemary Belson. Our engineer was Merritt Jacob. If you have ideas for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil or any other comments on the podcast, you can write us at spoilers at slate.com. For Forrest Whitman, I'm Dana Stevens, and we will talk to you again soon. <laughs>